Now entering Nerdist.com. Today's Nerdist Writers Panel was recorded at ATX Television Festival in Austin. That's Austin's best television festival. No offense, none taken. Uh, badges are already on sale for next year's festival, and I know they have some amazing things being cooked up. Uh, it'll be hard to top this year's festival, which boasted screenings and guests from Orange is the New Black and The Strain and Fargo and kind of everything great, uh, Andy Daly's review, all kinds of terrific things. Um, but they are going to indeed try to top it, and there's going to be lots of cool stuff next year, uh, starting on June 4th, I believe. Go to atxfestival.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel, and it's hosted by Ben Blecker, where he gets a bunch of writers, and he asks them lots of questions, and it's starting now, so this will be the end of the theme. That's it. Kyle Killen. All right. Uh, ratings determine whether or not you get into a good college uh, or end up living in your parents' basement. So, um, given their power to alter the fate of your favorite show, I want to try to talk quickly about how they work how they fail, and how they're going to have to change. So before we can do that, we kind of have to remind ourselves how television comes to exist. Basically, there are three ways. One, you pay for it. Two, someone else pays for it. Or three, a combination of you and someone else pays for it. So someone else pays for it is the broadcast model that you're all familiar with. Essentially, advertisers fund programming as a sort of commercial delivery mechanism. Networks create programs that are designed to draw the most eyeballs, and then they sell those eyeballs off to advertisers, and you get to enjoy free TV uh, for the price of letting talking dogs try to sell you tacos. That seemed like a more current reference when I wrote it down. Um, (laughs) You pay for it is the premium cable model, basically, uh, you know, HBO, Showtime subscriptions. And you give them their money and you say more Game of Thrones, more of those uh, Tom Cruise movies that nobody saw. And they buy or create the content and then they uh, roll around in piles of your cash. And then the third is a mix of those two. So we'll call that sort of the uh, cable... Well, I guess I've written that we'll call it the cable MVPD model, which is really, it rolls off the tongue. Um, Basically, on the one hand, they work like broadcast because uh, they are selling advertising just like uh, traditional television networks. But they're also collecting what amounts to subscription fees because while AMC and FX aren't billing you directly, they are charging your cable or satellite provider a fee for every subscriber to that channel. So what the cable company does is they add up the prices for all of those channels, and they add in whatever it costs to provide horrible customer service, and then that's how you get your cable bill. So the thing to take away from all of this is that the more you can rely on subscriber fees, the less you have to worry about the ratings for any given show. So shows like Veep and Girls have ex- incredibly small audiences relative to broadcast comedies, but they have highly vocal fans who are willing to pay their subscription just to get that show. And if you happen to hate those shows, but you like Game of Thrones, you are also not going to cancel your subscription. So as long as you have one thing on the channel that people will keep paying for month after month, you can have a mix of big hits and cult favorites. Similarly, subscriber fees ensure 
basic cable channels against some of the demands of advertisers, and they can cut a wider berth for shows to find and cultivate an audience. So you may be getting a glimpse of why a lot of your favorite shows are where they are. The more reliant you are on selling ads, the more it becomes the job of every single show to sell ads or to be replaced by one that can. Okay, so that's how TV works. Let's look at how ratings work and how we get them. Um, Basically, since the 50s, uh, a company called Nielsen has had a monopoly on measuring television. They do that with a statistical sample of about 25,000 homes that stand in for the rest of us, and they use a machine called a people meter that basically monitors everything you do with your television monitors. Who's watching, for how long, what they fast-forward through, when they change channels, everything you do. They add up all that information every night, and they create a report, and they publish it, and someone celebrates, and someone jumps out a window. (laughs) The actual ratings themselves sort of break down into these three numbers. The rating is the percentage of all the households with a TV. The share is a percentage of the TVs that are actually on, and the... Demo or targeted demographic is a percentage of people who fall in a certain age range that are watching some particular thing. So what you'll often hear about is the key demo, which is 18 to 49. And that's what advertisers care about. The thinking being that if you are under 18, you don't have any money. And if you are over 50, if you are over 50, you've, you've already decided where you're going to buy tacos for the rest of your life. <laughs> And no amount of talking dogs will change your mind. I'm really committed to that reference. Um, so as an example, this is sort of a, this is a, like a ratings report that you might see uh, published. So show X had a 2.2 rating with a 4 share and a 1.1 in the demo. Do you need to know or remember any of this? Not really. Like, all you need to take away from this is that, A, Nielsen is how we have counted viewers forever, and B, advertisers care a lot about who they're talking to, not just how many people. Okay. Now that we know what ratings look like, uh, let's see how they have been lately. In a word, they have been terrible. Um, here's some samples. These are the average ratings for the highest rated program in the selected years between 1995 and 2013. So you can see that the numbers don't just go down. The best show on TV in 2013 was almost half of what it was in 1995. Here's some other ways that you can look at it. Uh, The red line is the top rated show. The blue line is the average show. And all these squiggly lines are the individual networks. So no matter how you look at it, you can see that all the lines are going down. So what is happening? Well, if you ask network executives at, like, the upfronts, say, a month ago, they will tell you that the problem is the DVR. The DVR is what is killing ratings. So is that true? Um, No, it is not. (laughs) Um, Nielsen ratings actually do account for DVR viewing. They break it into three categories. So You have all the people who watch the show live or on the day that it airs. You have the people who watch it within three days, and you have people who watch it within a week. If we add all those numbers together, do ratings go up? Yes. Does it counteract the nosedive that we are seeing? Absolutely not. The downward slopes are less severe, 
but ratings are still falling across the board. So if the DVR isn't the problem, why are the network executives so fixated on it? Because while the DVR isn't killing ratings, it is killing the traditional ad-based model of making television. See, advertisers do not care if you watch the shows. They care if you watch the commercials. And they actually have their own rating that tells them exactly that. It's called... C3, and it is a sort of super secret, uh, shared only within the industry, rating that tells them how many people watched the actual commercials within three days of something airing. Here's what's critical to know about DVRs and ratings. The C3 rating actually ends up being very close to the live plus same day rating. So how is that possible? The people who watch it on the same day, some of them are skipping the commercials. Nielsen doesn't account for that. It just counts how many people watched it the same day. The people who watch it within three days, many of them are skipping the commercials. So when you add three days of actual commercial views, you end up with a number that is very close to the first day, whether you watch the commercials or not. The point of all of that is that you can get a pretty good look at what advertisers care about by looking at the live plus same-day rating. So that's the problem with adding days. It stops mattering to advertisers. Yes, you can make the rating number go up by saying, look, all these people watched it within a week. But what they're saying is they may have watched the show, they didn't watch my commercials, and that's what I'm paying you for. Worse, even if you could show me a study that says everybody who watches the show within five days watches all of the commercials, a lot of those would still be worthless because what you are advertising is often time sensitive, right? So I needed you to come to my sale on clothing last week. I need you to buy a car last weekend. I need you to come to my monster movie last weekend. And by the time you are seeing the ad, there's some other monster movie coming out and my store has gone out of business and now I'm back to living in my parents' basement. You can actually see the effect of DVRs on advertising even within the three-day window. So traditionally, Thursday night was the night for advertising. It was the most expensive night because it's when you were planning your weekend, but you were watching television. So you would get hit with a lot of car and uh, movie commercials, which are traditionally some of the biggest spenders in advertising. And then advertisers started to realize that they had to move big chunks of that advertising to Wednesday night to something like Modern Family because... You guys were watching your Wednesday night TV on Thursday and your Thursday night TV God knows when. So if they wanted to get in front of your weekend, they had to back up. So the point is, DVRs don't just let you skip the ads. They let you wait to watch them until it wouldn't matter if you skip them. Either way, advertisers advertisers don't want to pay for those viewers. So, okay... The DVR sucks for advertisers, but it's good for you, right? Like, you get to watch what you want to watch when you want to watch it, which should mean that you're watching more television. So why are the ratings going down? Why are they at all-time lows, in fact? Because the explosion of original content is at all-time highs. Right now, there are 200 dramas being programmed across 35 different networks. So that is fracturing and expanding the audience in ways that we've never seen before. You take essentially the same audience and instead of spreading them across 60 dramas, you try to spread them across 200 and you're going to get less people clustered around any given thing. Okay, 
So why has everybody decided that they need to start making their own shows? Because original programming is exclusive. You can only get it from the network that it is on. So if you like it, you become very loyal to that network, and it turns out that loyalty is extraordinarily valuable. When HBO started making its own series, they very quickly discovered that people started citing the series as the number one reason that they were paying their subscription. And in fact, subscriptions would get canceled right after series ended, and then they would rise right before series started. So... That makes sense. You can get old movies a lot of different ways, but you can only get The Sopranos from HBO, right? So original series helped HBO both expand its subscriber base and charge more for their channel, and very quickly that idea started to spread to basic cable. So let's look at a couple examples, uh, and by look, I guess I mean look at me because I don't have a different slide, uh, <laughs> of, how, of how that worked in basic cable. So uh, ABC Family and AMC, those are two places that used to do one thing and then decided to get into original content. Now, their content has been extraordinarily successful, so that may seem like an obvious choice, but at the time when they decided to switch, there were people in their own programming departments who very rightly pointed out that they could get much higher ratings with reruns of Full House than they could with original content. And that is true. When they both switched and started broadcasting original content, ratings at both of those channels did fall. But even if there were less people watching, those people now found the channel indispensable for something. If ABC uh, were to go off the air, people who were bummed about losing Full House reruns um, could buy the DVDs, or they could watch some other old show, or they could commit suicide. (laughs) But they were unlikely to call up their cable company and freak out. You take away the network that has bunheads and pretty little liars, and that is exactly what people do. They freak out. So you can drive a much harder bargain for the price of your channel with Time Warner when you know that you are backed by the Breaking Bad army. So further, even if you had lower numbers, it turned out you could charge more for the ads because advertisers were more interested in having their content buried in things that were fresh and original and new as opposed to endlessly repeating reruns. So you get higher subscription fees and you get more ad dollars. And that's why everybody is doing it. So if everybody's making original content, then it seems like we're going to see this ratings problem get worse instead of better, which raises the question, how are you supposed to make, how are you supposed to make money in an era where ratings are continually falling? Well, the first thing you could do is you could buy sports. Sports and live events are the one thing that audiences have shown that they have no interest in DVRing. They want to watch them live. They want to watch them when they're happening, which means that they will watch the commercials. 34 out of the 35 most watched programs in 2013 were NFL football games, which explains the astronomical rates that you are seeing for television packages for major college and professional sports. So, but let's say that you can't afford sports. The next step would be to own your content. So networks don't actually make shows. Studios make shows, and the networks sort of rent them. They make money by selling advertising during the show when it airs, and then they give them back to the studio. Here's all the things that the studio gets to do with it then. So each of those represents a different way that you can exploit a show to make money. So if you're a network and you happen to own the studio that you're buying the show from, like 
Fox and 20th Century Fox or ABC and ABC Studios or NBC and NBC Universal, then suddenly you're able to tap into all these other sources of income beyond just selling ads. And this is one of the ways that you can really begin to understand what gets on TV these days and what stays on TV. So, for instance, CBS doesn't own any of its giant hit comedies, which deeply bothers them, other than the fact that they get the ad revenue, which is not insignificant, they don't get any of these other things. So that is why they hired Greg Garcia and paid him a fortune to make the Millers for CBS Studios and then put it on uh, right after Big Bang Theory, because they want a hit that they can exploit seven different ways, not just one. Or you take a show like H- uh, Hawaii Five-0, which for CBS is very low rated, but CBS owns it. It is apparently extraordinarily popular overseas, and they've sold the rerun rights to TNT for a large sum of money. So when you add all of that together, because they own it, they actually make more from Hawaii Five-0 than they would from a show that had twice its ratings, but that they did not own. So bottom line, if you have less people watching, you need to have different ways to make money, and owning the shows is what makes that possible. So all of that is not to say that there is not still a fortune to be made in selling advertising. But to get it, you have to do it differently. Instead of focusing on how many people are watching, you have to start to really focus on who, the, the demographics. So advertisers, like we talked about, will pay much more to talk to a small group of people who are the right group of people rather than a large group of the wrong people. So let's sort of talk about why that is. This is a map of New York City. Um, All of the iPhone users are in red. The Android users are in green. There are more Android users in the country and the world than there are iPhone users. But iPhone developers tend to focus first or exclusively on the iPhone. I'm sorry, app developers focus first or exclusively on the iPhone. So why would they focus on the smaller audience? Well, the answer is that that red blob in the middle is Manhattan. And as you may have heard, Manhattan is a very expensive place to live. So the people who live there tend to be wealthier. Uh, and the, the, there's a really wealthy group of purple, strange people who still use blackberries. Um, so Anytime you're selling something, you want to focus on the people who can really afford to buy it, even if that means reaching out to a smaller group instead of a large one. So let's look at what uh, iPhone versus Android looks like in television. So until this last year, CBS was, uh, had the highest overall ratings, but their, lar- their audience largely consists of an older group of viewers that advertisers are less interested in. So you look at 60 Minutes versus Bob's Burgers. Right, Five times as many viewers, even in the targeted demographic, they're nearly a half a point higher, but ads on Bob's Burgers sell for almost a third more. So why is that? Well, the first thing is what we talked about earlier, that essentially you're not just buying an ad, you're buying the content around it, and you think about how that, refre- how that reflects on your brand. And in short, 60 Minutes isn't very cool. Like Even if 18 to 49-year-olds are watching it, you don't get any good reflection from being surrounded by that. So a cool show is worth more. The second reason is the reason that Family Guy was resurrected from the dead. At the time when Family Guy went away, 
It was a show that spoke mostly to young men. Young men were not considered a particularly valuable audience because they watched everything. (laughs) But then they started to get really interested in the internet and in video games, and suddenly young men weren't watching anything. So if you had a show that could target them, that was extraordinarily valuable. So Peter Griffin rides again, and Bob's Burgers is more expensive than uh, Mike Wallace. The other, oh, I'm sorry. You can also see this with, uh, with, with New Girl, right? So its audience is one-sixth the size of NCIS, almost half of its demo. But the people who watch tend to be uh, young, affluent, and female. And advertisers will pay a premium to talk to them and to associate their brand with stuff that those people think is cool. So that's good, right? Like, uh, it doesn't matter how many people are watching. As long as we know a lot about them, we can still sell ads for a fortune and everything will be fine. Except to do that, you need to know a lot more about your audience than we used to. And that brings us to the problem with the Nielsen ratings. So they're from an era of three networks, an era when audiences were so massive, we couldn't conceive of having to care about the difference between a 0.9 and a 1.1. Like, those were both just things we should cancel. So (laughs) as the numbers get smaller, if we're going to squeeze more money out of them, we have to be able to get down and really see what is inside of those audiences, and that is the problem. Nielsen is a ruler in a world where we now need a microscope. So you have all of these competing systems that have come up to sort of fill that gap. And I don't want to plug or endorse any of them specifically, but they know things about you that are scary. (laughs) And they have hundreds of thousands of measuring points. They generate huge volumes of data, and then they marry that data to stuff that they're getting from social networking sites and from shopping sites. So... They're way beyond telling you how many 18 to 49-year-olds are watching. They are telling you how many 24-year-olds who make $80,000 a year and drive a Toyota and eat at Olive Garden and saw six movies last year are watching. And having that kind of data opens up all kinds of new ways to exploit your audience. But you have to switch to one of these. And so far, we haven't done that. So why is that? The standard response you get when you ask why we are still using Nielsen is because of the historical data, the fact that we have something to compare today's shows to. And if we all changed, we'd be very confused. If I suddenly changed all the currency in America to flarps and I offered to sell you a sandwich for a 1,000 flarps, you would have no idea if that is a good or a bad deal. But if you have bought everything uh, with dollars, then you have something to compare it to. So we know what we are willing to pay for a 1.5 in the demo on Thursday night. And we know how that compares to the rate that we paid for it last year and five years and 10 years ago. No one has any frame of reference for what 5% of the BMW-owning audience on Thursday night is worth. And so that's why a lot of these services are trying to simultaneously sell themselves to advertisers and to networks. Because you have to get the two sides speaking the same language. And at the moment, everybody just speaks Nielsen. The other problem is, if I happen to have the best Nielsen ratings... I have no motivation to change whatsoever. That only does a favor for my competitors. If I have the worst Nielsen ratings, of course I want to change. I want anything that could make me look better. So advertisers are suspicious when you say, you know, the system's broken when you're at the bottom of the system. And when you're at the top of the system, you're never going to declare the system broken. So we keep doing the same thing. 
So eventually, all of these issues will catch up with us. Changes are going to be necessary. So um, what will TV look like then? So whether or not Nielsen buys one of these companies or whether somebody finally knocks them off, our approach to understanding TV and audiences uh, and advertising is going to become a lot more like it is on the web. It's going to be data-driven. It's going to be hyper-personal. And one of the things that really lets uh, us exploit that is the other thing that really scares broadcasters, and that is streaming. So as nifty as the DVR is, it's basically a souped-up VCR. It is an antiquated technology with a turbocharger and fuzzy dice. So if you let that go, because it tells you the fact that people love their DVRs, it tells you that what they want is to watch what they want when they want to want it, when they want to watch it. If you embrace that, if you make that possible, a lot of the problems that the DVR creates actually go away. You don't have to guess who's watching anymore. Netflix knows when you log in. That information lets them sell. Netflix doesn't do it, but Hulu does. It lets them sell different commercials to a 45-year-old man and an 18-year-old girl who are both watching the same show at the same time. You can sell ads for weekend movies on Thursday night, even if what you're watching on Thursday night is a Monday night show from five weeks ago. All of that stuff stops mattering. So streaming is really going to be the savior of ad-based television, not the thing that kills it. You may also have apps like HBO Go and watch ESPN on your phones or tablets. That is where television is headed. Even the heads of the cable companies will tell you that these giant subscription packages are overpriced dinosaurs and that eventually people uh, are going to get rid of them. In fact, young people are rejecting cable packages in record numbers. So once you start to dismantle that system, uh, essentially channels just become apps that are competing for space on your phone or your tablet. And whether or not you pay for them or make space for them really is going to come down to their ability to provide one service, and that is called curation. You hear a lot about curation in web circles. Like The idea is that we are so overwhelmed with content that we become very reliant on a smart person to look at all of it for us and then tell us what's cool and tell us what's interesting. So whether you're HBO or you're ABC, I'm only going to pay for your channel if your content is something that I can trust you to consistently pick out and deliver in a way that I'm going to like. So that's a shift for networks. Networks have been run like shopping malls. They have a little bit of everything for everybody, and they're very dependent on uh, foot traffic and large crowds. But we're entering an era where broadcast networks are going to have to operate a lot more like cable networks, which is more like personal shoppers. Like, you're very busy, you want somebody to go out, get you stuff you like, and bring it back. And if your personal shopper is consistently bringing back a grab bag of seemingly random stuff, then you are probably going to fire them. These are the percentages of shows canceled after a single season by various networks. So you can see that all of the broadcast networks are over 50%. ABC and NBC are up around 65, while HBO is at 33 and Showtime is under 10%. So why does that matter? Because in a world where the problem is an overabundance of choice, if the person who is supposed to be telling you what is cool keeps changing their mind, eventually you will stop listening to them. So in this age of endless content, 
and curators, if you're going to survive, you really have to learn how to throw sort of less shit at the wall and make more of it stick. So that kind of sums up my very lengthy presentation on ratings. The discussion about curators sort of transitions us very nicely to the next part of this thing. Um, In the age of curation where the problem is too much to pay attention to, we are all going to require someone to tell us what is what. So these tastemakers are destined to become our masters. (laughs) They will tell us what to do, and we will blindly do it, and we will kneel before them, and we will thank them for not wasting the additional leisure time we gained by having our jobs taken by robots. (laughs) Tomorrow, they will be our gods. Today, they are our panelists. Please help me in welcoming our critics. Apologize, my notes are on my phone, so I'm not. That's what I'm looking at. Okay. Don't just check in Twitter. Uh, Wouldn't blame me if you were. Of course. I mean, it's a good time for it. So, uh, next to me, uh, after 14 years covering television for the New York Star Ledger, he moved on and now writes and podcasts for hitfix.com. Please welcome Alan Seppenwall. Next to him is the editor-in-chief for RogerEbert.com and television critic for New York Magazine and Vulture.com. He was also a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Criticism, which I would want included in every introduction of me if it had happened to me. Please welcome Matthew zoller Seitz. Next name is the TV editor for the AV Club, as well as a sometimes contributor to Grantland and the LA Times, Todd Vanderwerf. And finally, one of the founders of Television Without Pity, as well as previously TV, also a contributor to Grantland Slate and New York Magazine, Tara Ariano. So uh, I'll start. uh, We'll just go down, and I'll just take a poll here. I'll take a poll by asking you about a poll that uh, was given to... uh, fine art critics, and apparently four out of five of them all said that the least important part of their job was evaluating the art they were criticizing. But when you look at television and film criticism, it seems mostly based around evaluation. Why do you think we have a different sort of standard or aim between fine art criticism and TV versus film? When you say evaluating, you mean like, is it good or bad? Exactly. I mean, literally, the AV Club sort of is famous for giving grades. Not that that's wrong. I love it. It's handy. I'm just asking, why do we do that in film and television as opposed to uh, that being the focus of, I don't know, uh, you know, uh, art, you know, the other stuff, paintings. Um, I, I think we view film and television. Um, I think the majority of Americans view film and television as product and want to know: Should I consume this? Basically, should I purchase a ticket? Should I buy this cable channel to watch this? Um, I think if you look at our reviews that we do put our grades on, you know, there's often very thoughtful stuff going on in the text. But when you get down to the comments, all anybody wants to say is, "I thought this was more of a B than a B plus." And mm-hmm. you get like a hundred comments about that. Yeah, you deal with that a lot with the star ratings. Yeah, at uh, RogerEbert.com. At Vulture, where I'm the uh, TV critic, 
We, for some reason, give star ratings for individual episodes, but not for any other kind of review, and I've never quite understood that. But at RogerEbert.com, every straight review of a movie has a star rating assigned to it. And I, and echoing what Todd said, people get really hung up on the ratings. And I have to admit that sometimes I, I will intentionally add or subtract half a star just to freak people out. <laughs> just to kind of make the point that, you know, it's not about the rating, guys. And also, you know, I don't know, I don't want to sidetrack us too much, but um, one of the hobby horses that I ride constantly on Twitter is that people have forgotten how to read a mixed review. It's stunning. Like, just within the course of my professional lifetime, the ability of people to hold two contradictory thoughts in their head at the same time has gone way down. Like, they want to know, but did you like it? It's like, well, if I liked this part of it, but I hated this part of it, that, you know, there's your answer. Yeah, but did you like it? I don't know what the answer is to that. Yeah, like like a B review or something. That's why so much hate for this. I I get a lot of that sometimes. Well, it's got to be greatest of all time or worst ever. Yes. That's the problem with letting users rate it. We discovered on Television Without Pity where it's like, if you can give anything a rating from an A to an F, if a user can, everything ends up somewhere in the oatmeal-y middle. Got it. And uh, do you find that watching everything, you know, given the vast volume of content that you watch, does that, does that affect how you see television? Does it, in fact, make you a TV snob? Because you watch everything, are you more attuned to things that are different, things that feel like they deviate from that sort of soft, creamy middle, and you get excited about those things? And does that separate you from the audience that does not watch everything the way that you do? Well, I think the, the push towards like episode-by-episode episode reviewing or recapping, whatever you want to call it, has unfortunately made me more of a snob because I used to write a lot more about the NCISs of the world, the Big Bang Theory type shows, and now I don't do it that often because those shows don't really lend themselves to that. So it becomes a selection bias where you're writing about the things that actually give you something to talk about week in and week out and are that dense. But there's so many other good kinds of things on TV, they're just you can't do it that way. Go ahead. No, no. I think um, I, I reviewed a whole season of Mom, Alan. So um, I think that you, I'm still really into when I see a well-done multi-camera sitcom, when I see a really well-done uh, crime procedural. It's just we have such a glut of those, especially on the broadcast networks, it's harder to stand out amid the noise. I think that's a, a big part of the problem. But I, I do agree that the episodic review format tends toward more complex dramas, especially in a, the occasional single-camera comedy. And I, I feel like there is um, an unintentional bias, at least in our audience's mind, that if we cover a show, every episode of a show, that means it's a good show. And sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just an interesting show. Exactly. Yeah, it is. it does mean that it's an interesting show. And I'll totally admit to being a snob in the respect that we're describing it in that a show like an NCIS, uh, it was funny because, you know, I saw it up there and I was reminded like, oh, yeah, NCIS. <laughs> that's a thing that's on television. 22 million people a week watch that, including my stepdad, probably. Um, and, you know, it's I've watched a few episodes of that show, but it, to me it's like eating a Twix bar. Like, you, you know, you eat the Twix bar and then maybe a month later you buy another Twix bar and you're like... That was a perfectly good Twix bar, almost exactly like the last one that I had a month ago. And it's not like a show like Louie or Mad Men or Game of Thrones uh, or even um, something like Inside Amy Schumer, which I'm really digging, where, where the whole point of it is the surprise factor. And, and I was just talking about this again with Alan. Um, 
people often ask me, is there, is there one quality that defines all of the great shows? And, I, and the answer that I give, and I don't know if it's really true or not, it's just my answer, is surprise. Like whether, you were, whether you're sitting down to watch The Simpsons or The Sopranos or Seinfeld or The Wire or what have you, you feel that sense of anticipation. You're kind of leaning forward in your seat, and you tell people, shut up, shut up, it's starting. And you, like, want to listen to the theme music because it clears out your head and gets you in the right mental space for it. Like, it's like, it's a theme music, shut up. Um, all those shows have the same thing in common, which is you don't know what you're going to get. And you often get, like, something different than what you thought you might get, and often it's better. Sometimes it's worse, but usually it's not quite what you thought. And, that, and that's one thing I've found to be true for all of the shows that really, really matter to me. Uh, yeah, I definitely had that reaction last week to Halt and Catch Fire, which was I thought the pilot was a little bit piloty, but I appreciated it, <laughs> that it was different. I mean, it was a world that I hadn't seen yeah. represented on TV before, and that alone is sort of exciting. But to the snob question, speaking as somebody who writes for Grantland about freak shows, so um, like your embarrassing bodies or the upcoming botched on E, um, I may be the least snobby person on this panel, and I will only stop watching those shows if they get less disgusting, basically. That's, that's my angle. What, what happened on the latest Catfish, Tara? Oh, boy. <laughs> you all about it. Actually, it was a little bit boring, but it was a celebrity, so that was at least, again, different. <laughs> I'm happy to go on if people are really curious. <laughs> um, I, I do think in insofar as the, the sort of snob question, it gets it harder to get people to pay attention to especially broadcast network shows nowadays, unless they're like community where it's obviously this weird little thing that's doing something new every week. Like, I've sort of been beating the drum for the show Person of Interest for, like, two and a half years now. And it's one of the most interesting shows on TV. It's one of the ones that's most engaged with the, where we are as a country. But everybody hears that and thinks, I think my parents watch that. And then they just sort of, like, tune you out. And, yes, my in-laws do watch Person of Interest. But it's still, like, a great show. So yeah, I mean, it took me forever to convince people to try to watch Hannibal. And based on the ratings, they're still not watching. But uh, a lot of the initial reaction was, yeah, but you're doing a Hannibal Lecter show on NBC. How can that possibly be good? So some of that snobbery has definitely filtered down to the audience as well. When I, when I was at the Star-Ledger with Alan, um, there was a, an editor that we both had named Wally Strobe. He was the Sunday arts editor. And Wally and I, Alan was obsessed with Deadwood. But Wally and I were really, 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 really obsessed with Deadwood. <laughs> to the point where, like, every time that one, you know, I would come in the office or he would come in the office. Whoever got there second would walk up to the other one and start talking about Deadwood. And we had a day where uh, we were talking about Deadwood for like the 438th day in a row and this copy editor named Jim Barry said, gentlemen. And we said, yes, Jim. And he said, will you do me a favor? Yes. What is that, Jim? And he said, will you please, 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 please stop talking about goddamn Deadwood. <laughs> and the audience, the, the whole uh, newsroom broke into applause <laughs> at that. And uh, so that's a long way of saying that Hannibal is my new Deadwood. <laughs> I won't shut up about Hannibal. Well, it does feel like the, the, the curation thing that we were talking about, as you said, has filtered down to the audience in such that if Hannibal was good, it would be on cable is sort of the reaction, and the same thing with Person of Interest. And I, in your Halt and Catch Fire review, you sort of copped to the opposite, which is, yeah. uh, you know, I don't know if this is a good or bad, but I admit it's on AMC, yeah. so I'm going to give Positively it Positively biased to, right. I think, what I... And is that something you find yourselves accounting for? Like, when you watch Hannibal, are your expectations lower when you get the pilot, and then you're like, wait a minute, that wasn't terrible at all? 
my expectations for Hannibal could not have been lower. Oh my God! I, yeah. it's like I mean, it was like it took me like twenty minutes just to get past the idea that this didn't suck, and yeah. that it was by the guy who did Pushing Daisies. I mean, the two shows really could not be yeah. more different. But like, yeah. the world did not need a new Hannibal Lecter show, and it certainly didn't need another serial killer show, and it didn't need it on NBC. And then I watch it, and I sort of my jaw dropped. So, but back to the halt and catch fire thing, though, like what you were talking about. Um, I, I kind of was on the same page about that, which is like I was so excited. I'm from, uh, I was raised in Dallas right. in the 80s, which is that, that's where it's set. And the computer, you know, Texas Instruments, Ross Perot came out of there. And, and so I, you know, when he's holding that Dr. Pepper can from 1983, I was like, <gasps> you know, um, and it did nothing for me. And I think the problem was, and this is something you've written a lot about, is there's this certain cliche of the intense anti-hero driven cable show where it's like the people watch The Sopranos and they watch Breaking Bad and they derive maybe the wrong lessons from it or something. And eventually that leads to Low Winter Sun. (laughs) Yeah. Like I would much rather be writing about person of interest or something else on a broadcast network. That than show, that, that show on the Good Wife that they're making fun of is yeah. basically Darkness at Noon. Yes, <laughs> AMC's Darkness at Noon. They were careful to say every time. There's like always somebody getting beaten and locked in a trunk on that show. And and I do think that like some cable channels will get certain carte blanche from me or from the audience. Like I'm gonna get. I always say I will give a show on FX a long leash because they've had a decade to earn that trust. AMC had that trust for a while. I don't know that they have it anymore based on the things they've introduced in the last five or six years. Showtime briefly had it, then they kind of lost it, and now it's sort of a case-by-case basis. But definitely, I'm snobby about channels as well as about, like, cable versus network. The Walking Dead. You you get the sense with AMC is that they have, like, sort of no idea how they lucked into Mad Men and Breaking Bad, so they keep trying to make them in reverse. And just, like, Halt and Catch Fire, you can pick out the beats where the network executives were like, why don't you take this from the Mad Men pilot and just kind of put it right in there? Yeah, this is going to be an interesting period for AMC, having just just about to lose Mad Men and having just lost Breaking Bad, where we, we recently referred on our podcast, Extra Hot Great, to HBO's, thank you, HBO's rebuilding year, the year after the, when the Sopranos ended and they just tried a bunch of stuff. Like, I love Flight on the Concords, but I would not say that that was a huge success for the network. I mean, John from Cincinnati, what, what more need be said than those three words? But um, well. AMC, well, I don't right. know, Butchie instead. <laughs> Reasonable people can disagree, that, I suppose. You know, HBO in that period did exactly what you're saying. They tried insane stuff, and eventually they got to new stuff that worked, whereas what Todd is saying is AMC is essentially saying, how do we reverse engineer the stuff we already have yeah. and make that again? Well, but HBO, you could say that HBO may be reverse engineered board, Boardwalk Empire, and after, in my opinion, after four seasons, they finally got to some kind of authentic, great show. But it took them a while. But there was a long period where I felt like that was like, you know... Yeah. Nothing else has worked. Jersey mobsters, let's Basically, do Basically, yeah. I mean, you know, let's, <laughs> let's dress them up in nicer clothes and give it another go, you know. It'll be interesting to see how they respond to, how everybody responds to the huge success Game of Thrones has had this year. Because it's the kind of thing only HBO can do on that budget, but that doesn't mean that, like, you know, the Oxygen Network isn't going to try. Well, his, even History tried. I mean, History's trying with Vikings, yeah. or as we call it on our site, off-season Game of Thrones. Um, which is, you know, it's very ambitious for a channel that's never really done scripted before. So that would be one example of trying to follow that. 
And you, you referenced uh, community and banging the drum for uh, for person of interest, and and you at one point wrote an open letter to save Chuck from cancellation. Like, do you see stumping for the material that you like as a part of your job, or does that somehow make you less objective as critics? There's no such thing as an objective critic. The whole job is subjective. I mean, I, I guess you could say there are certain like aesthetic principles or something that we can all objectively agree to, but I don't know that we can. Like, Matt I guess and I the would line... get into a brawl about like Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. So, yeah. I guess I'm looking for the line between critic and fan. Like, at what point uh, is is your love of something and your support of something? How about this? Have you ever? Did you receive any pushback for being that openly? Please save this show. Not so much for that. I've gotten pushback, you know, every now and then about, um, you know, if I if I interview the showrunner too often, suddenly I'm accused of being chummy. One time I did something which was very stupid. I was on the set of Community, and one of the directors said, "Hey, Alan, go stand in the background of this scene," and I just did it, and that sort of that caused a little bit of a backlash because then suddenly I was no longer a critic. I was the guy who had been in the background of a scene, so I wouldn't do that again. But I don't know. Do, do you guys ever get that? A, li- a little bit. Um, I once had somebody say that I'm just I'm too friendly to anybody who's nice to me on Twitter, which maybe is correct. <laughs> but um, uh, but I, I think that there is that element of like when community we wrote about community a lot. That was also because our readers like to read about community. When we write about Breaking Bad a lot, it's because our writer, readers like to read about Breaking Bad. Like we are also driven by our own version of the Nielsen ratings and like how we're going to make money from advertisers. So there is a lot of that. And I think that uh, to me, there's a little uh, line there between being a critic and, um, you know, just sort of continually banging the drum to make money. But that's why you have other writers. And to your point about curation earlier, I mean, I think that's why people read you because they want to know if my taste mostly lines up with writer X, will I enjoy the show I've heard about? And, you know, even if it's something that's kind of marginal, if you read about it every single week, maybe that'll start to sink in. So I think people like it when you write about a show that you like. I mean, it's fun to tee off on something once in a while, but if it's something that you hate, at a certain point, it's like, why are you doing this to yourself? You can stop. No one's making you watch this. I wrote about a whole season of Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. and That's different. I regret nothing. I mean, I write about the newsroom, too, so I, I hear where you're coming from, but I, I feel like, on balance, you know, three quarters happy, one quarter black box. I, uh, <laughs> I, was, I was just reminded of uh, something at the Star-Ledger, the conversations that Alan and I would have when we would write about a particular show, whatever our pet show was, we would write about it too much. And we had uh, uh, editors there who would say, um, I don't think the readers are that interested in this show. And what they usually meant was, I'm not that interested, and I'm tired of editing these endless stories about you know, the Larry Sanders show, which I wrote 586 pieces on. And at one point, uh, one of my editors actually showed me the ratings for the Larry Sanders show and said, these are the ratings. The most that anyone has ever watched a show is 1.8 million individual people in a week. No one's watching the show. Stop writing about every single week. But but then when the online revolution came along, it didn't matter anymore. And and the blog that I founded, the the house next door in 2006, was founded specifically so that I had a place to write about the things that I was obsessed with over and over and over again from a million different angles. And I specifically started it because I had written two reviews for New York Press of um, the Terrence Malick film The New World, which is still my favorite movie of all time. And I wrote like seven or eight or nine 
pieces about the new world in the space of about two months, and no one complained because the people who didn't want to read that didn't come to the blog. It's yeah. a whole different issue. I'm glad you brought that up because that, that's something we definitely experienced on Television That Pity as well, that our biggest shows were not big ratings getters. They were like Veronica Mars and Battlestar Galactica and The Amazing Race. Like Those were the shows that people really hooked into. And they found you. It was like, they, thank God you're here. And they found each other. Yes. The last time I watched an episode of NCIS was um, with my... With my in-laws, sorry to keep picking on my in-laws, um, but like but my here? my father-in-law fell asleep, you know, three quarter, two, a third of the way, and he woke up with about ten minutes left. Asked his wife what had happened, she filled him in, and he said, "Oh, it's that episode." So like those people are not going to you. You get that a lot. Like, why don't you write about NCIS? Because the people who watch NCIS will maybe read a review of it. They're not going to come back week after week after week to read multiple pieces about it. Whereas the fans of you know. Um, something really low rated but but really passionate about like we um, were really surprised with the Comedy Central show review with Andy Daly which like nobody watched every time we said something about it like there was this ocean of people who came in who had a Google News alert for it I guess that's a very hard Google News alert to create given yeah, the title I know. of the show <laughs> yeah. You referenced sort of having your own version of uh, ratings and the, you know, the obsession with page views, especially in film criticism, has changed literally who has jobs and who doesn't, how, you know, everything is listicles and, and clickbait and how has that changed what you guys do, particularly, you know, sort of before, as you rode the, the online revolution, has it occurred? Where, how does it feel like it has shaped what you write and what you do? I don't know if it shaped what I do, but it's sort of, it, it, it was sort of a right place, right time. I mean, Tara was doing it even before with, with, with Tell Job Pity and Mighty Big TV before that. But the idea of, because you're writing about this show every week and you're doing multiple shows every week, you ha- you're giving people a reason to constantly come back over and over and over again. And so the economics can sustain that in a way that it's harder to do with film criticism. Um, so... You know, that's the reason everyone kind of jumped into the recap game or the review game or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, you want to be part of the the habits that people have around watching TV. I think we're also kind of at peak recap, though. Like we can that is true. We can see when we have too many shows on one night. There are some that people just don't read about, even if they were formerly very popular. We're reaching this point where there's so much television that you, we kind of have to evolve a new model out of this old one while keeping the stuff that works about the old one, and we're like we're not really doing that yet. My favorite way to write about an ongoing scripted show is three times a season, and I and there are some shows that I recap every single week, and the, and and in some cases I'm glad that I decided to do that, in other cases not so much. Like I, I love Justified, but I think the last season of Justified was the first generally disappointing season that they've had. Um, and uh, I was so excited yeah. about Homeland after season one, and then season two it was like, what? Yeah. And by season three I was out. I was out. It's like, find somebody else to do this. But the 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 checking in like at the beginning at the middle and the end I like that because you can write a longer piece you can sort of focus your attention you can obsess over one scene or one episode but you don't have to obsess over every episode and I just think it's more reasonable generally we're, we're doing that a lot with our our TV reviews which take a larger view of things but I, I increasingly find that there is this question both from my bosses and from the people who read it like why are you doing this when you already do every week reviews. Well, you can take a, a different view of things in that broader stance than you can in the single week-to-week reviews. Like, I love writing the weekly reviews. I think they're 
they're fun to do. I think that like you can go crazy in a way you can't elsewhere. But also, the downside of that is that sometimes it's very easy to get lost in the weeds. And I, I like the the clarity you get from pulling back. What we have tried to do on previously.tv, which you know we do posts about every episode of a show, but we don't necessarily do a straight ahead. Well, we don't do a straight ahead recap. So we have different formats that we use, like. For a reality show, we have the watch-skip index where you break it down by segment, and then we also do sort of similar things where it's like it, the idea being this is content you would only see in this form on our site because everybody does recaps. Well, the key becomes when, when everybody's doing recaps, then, you know, I've, I've participated in a lot of these wither the recap sort of panels. <laughs> and, uh, and what I tell people is it's really like... I think we should resist the temptation to overthink what a recap is and what it's about. And, and the comparison I like to make is that it is, it's a performance that happens to be in print, and there is a shared topic, which is this particular show. And so you'll get, like, you know, everybody on this panel and all of these other people doing their own version of the Mad Men recap. And, like, my approach to it is not at all uh, like Alan's, which in turn is not at all like uh, Molly Lambert, who's fantastic, or um, Tom and Lorenzo. Um, and it's in a way, it's almost like it reminds me. I started out as a visual artist. I sort of fell sideways into writing, and it reminds me a bit of art school, where you've got twelve people gathered around a bowl of fruit, and your assignment is draw the bowl of fruit, and you're going to get you know a bunch of different versions of that bowl of fruit. Some better than others, some more original than others, and some that are just flat out crazy. Like, are we looking at the same bowl of fruit? <laughs> and and you know that's that's the way I like to to think of these recaps. Is like it's to me, it's more like. I'm the friend you have who watches Mad Men, and when the show is over, you come over and we talk about Mad Men together, and that's all there is to it. I think um, uh, one of the things that when I talk to people who want to be critics who are young college students or whatever, after I tell them you know, not to get into journalism, uh, <laughs> I, 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 I usually, like, usually the first thing I say is like, you, a lot of people think, I certainly thought this, perfecting your opinion, having the right opinion about everything is going to be like why people read you, but they're not going to read you. But they're going to read you if you're interesting. So the most important thing, even if you're writing about something everybody else is, just write about, find something you think is interesting, and just write about that, and be as interesting as possible, and as true to your own voice. It's the same as any writing, really. You reference that you know being the friend that you turns you after you've watched the show, and that that is exactly how I consume your reviews. The minute I finish, it's like, well, what did those guys think? But you do that for a lot of shows, like every week, and I want it the second I'm done watching, I want to be able to click and see what you, like, physically, how do you do that? How do you watch that many shows? Like, doesn't it, isn't it hard to watch it with that level of attention, then sit down, write those things, and then deliver them? We all have our systems. I get, I get on IM, Alan Sappenwell writes me and says, did you watch it yet? And I say, yes. And he says, are you done yet? And I say, no. And he's like, well, I'm probably, you know, 15 minutes away. Can we just say one thing that I think everyone who does this for a living has learned is you cannot beat Alan. You can't beat Alan. And there have been times when I've delivered. I'm pretty fast. I am pretty fast. I'm faster than a lot of people. But there have been many times where it's like, God damn it, I'm going to get this up before Alan does. And it's like before I can finish my sentence, his review is up. 
Um, so what's the secret, Alan? How is it you're doing that? Um, I, I took a typing class in ninth grade <laughs> high school, and that's the only thing I retained from high school. He's Quicksilver. <laughs> no, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think Tom... He does. He types like Clark Kent. If you've ever seen him, it's unreal. I, I think eventually we're going to get to the... It's going to be like the end of that movie, The Gunslinger, and Todd is going to be the fastest gun in the West. It's, it's, it's happening, but I, just, I, I take very thorough notes as I'm doing it. Um, with Mad Men, it's as much about, like, I want to go to bed. So, no, I mean, I, I can be very unfocused and very distracted and very ADD a lot of the time, but with Mad Men, I know, like, I need to get this done, otherwise I'm going to be useless tomorrow. So, what was this episode about? You know, I got to figure it out quickly and then just bang it out like you I used to try to bang out Mad Men recaps but just in the last season and a half of the show I've started to what I do is I watch it without taking notes and I watch it a second time and take notes and then I go to sleep and then I wake up at seven in the morning and write my recap yeah I would not be able to sleep that's my problem is I know I would be writing the review in my head in bed so I might as well just write the damn review that's why I increasingly just do stuff off screeners um, both because I can I have the authority to be able to let myself do that but also because that gives you luxury and time to watch something a number of times and pick out things you probably like I miss stuff in my Mad Men reviews all the time because it's it's that night yeah when will all the networks get on the screener train because it's really annoying when they don't no and and having Mad sorry for my screener privilege but having Mad Men and Game of Thrones at the same time is not nice it's not nice. Because well, those why are, are all they... those shows stacked up on Sunday Sundays? Night. It's really inhumane. Sunday night. There are other stuff. nights. <laughs> and on top of the shows you want to watch, there's shows that you don't want to watch that are on Sunday night. I walking mean, like, Dead. <sighs> fucking Walking Dead, man. <laughs> you want to you hear my summary of every season of Walking Dead? <laughs> Run! Followed by, I'm pregnant. Why didn't you tell me? I was sitting in a, a laundromat. My my washer and dro- my washer gave out. I had to take my kids and go to the laundromat at middle of the night to do. They had no laundry for school the next day. It was a Sunday night. Walking Dead was on in the laundromat, and that my children were not the only children there. And there's like zombies getting like shot in the head and eaten by dogs and dragged behind trucks and pulled apart and set on fire. And I'm thinking like. What country? What country are we living in? I just hate you, Walking Dead. It was Dad, a very succinct summary, but you, you left out the whole, I don't want to be a leader. We need you to be a leader. I don't want to be a leader. You have to be the leader. And yet this is considered a prestige show, whereas Catfish, on the other hand... Yeah. Give me a break. Yeah, quality TV. I said considered. I didn't say it was. Oh, God. So it sounds like there are shows that you cover that become a cross to bear. <laughs> Sons of Anarchy was like that for me towards the end, and eventually I sort of was able to talk my bosses into letting me... I, can I just say, I like how you immediately went from zombies to Jesus, but, you know, it's all right. <laughs> yeah. Um, great. Are there, uh, are there... I will open it up for questions. I should have warned you. Now you have to think of them. Yes? I have a question about that. Oh. Okay. <laughs> so I work in post-production. I've delivered a lot of TV. I would think that over the years that product placement would have spiked. It has not. In fact, we go through great pains to remove every label logo we can. And there's a zero column. Well, as a veteran of shows that get canceled in the first season... 
<laughs> Advertisers have no interest in associating themselves with something that may fail. So you actually you don't get to sell product placements. You know, we always, we'll put Sprite cans. We don't care. Let's do that. Whatever, whatever makes it easier to stay on the air. But you actually have to be a successful show to start to really utilize product placement. Beyond that, the network wants to control all of that. Someone wants to benefit maximally from the product placement, and you get into weird situations where the studio owns the show, but the and is literally making the show. So they're the ones who are putting that can in the show. But the network is the one that is going to benefit from the product placement. They're the ones who are going to sell it. So you have two entities working at cross-purposes. So it actually becomes somewhat tricky to monetize. It happens all the time, but it's not as easy as you would think it would be. So you're saying, like, if Awake had made it to a second season in the red world, he would have drank Coke, and in the green world, he would have drank Mountain Dew. That's right. <laughs> okay. Yes. As long as those... I really wish that happened. <laughs> I wish it had just been about that. Just a guy who drinks two different beverages. Like, how does he cope? Why? What does he do? Isn't that what Young Americans was supposed to be? Am I the only one who remembers that, <laughs> that show? Was, the that WB? was sponsored by Coke, yeah. Yeah. But how come that didn't work? Just kidding. It got canceled after season two. Right. So I have a quick question. So how would... Um, so obviously you read TV recaps after we've already seen the episode, which makes it different than almost any other form of criticism. You know, I read, you know, read ProjectReaper.com to figure out if I should see a movie or not. I read... Um, uh, Jerry Salt to see if I should go to an art show. You know, right. But on the other hand, if let's say I was able to read a Parks and Recreation View on Wednesday, would that change how you wrote about that show? Can you say that last part again? I, if I could read about, well, I'm going to watch Parks and Recreation anyway, but if I could read about, say, Hannibal on Thursday instead of on Sunday after it airs, would that change? If I'm using your reviews to help schedule my week, Right. Would that change how you guys actually write about the show as opposed to generating a discussion afterwards? This is something that I deal with as the editor at RogerEbert.com all the time because reviews, you know, movie reviews hit a much wider, more general audience than television, at least the kind of television criticism that we generally do. And one of the complaints that readers have is you're spo- you spoiled too much. You spoiled this, you spoiled that. And there's a certain point at which, like, being a critic, I feel like, I, uh, you know, what can I not have any nouns and verbs now? Like, you know, like my idea of a spoiler is not everyone else's idea of a spoiler. And I almost feel like there should be a label, some way to label things which are trying to protect your experience of of finding out what happens next and those that don't care. Like maybe rev- this is a review versus this is criticism. But then you get into this weird like, but I'm writing criticism, you know, and you don't want to insult anyone. I don't know what the answer is, but, you know, it's... I don't know what to tell you. I mean, like, I, I, a recap, the beauty of a recap is you don't have to worry about that. The answer is a long string of positive and or negative adjectives, and that's all the review is. <laughs> and and the, weir- the weirdest thing is it's the, the, the public view on TV criticism has swung 180 degrees in the last seven, eight years, where it becomes now, I will tweet a link to an advanced review of something that's premiering that night or the next day, and people will respond on Twitter, why are you running a review before this thing is aired? I know. I've noticed that. That's that's really? so different yes. now. Yeah. People are dumb. Despite the fact. 
Despite, the fact, despite the fact that, on average, our advanced reviews of TV shows are better read than our recaps. Like, not, not by much, but it, it is. There are more people coming in, I'm guessing, from Metacritic or something who just want to you know, read if they're supposed to watch it. I mean, this doesn't apply to what I do specifically, but I do think there's a difference between a review, like here's a new show that's coming up and what you need to know about it and whether you should watch versus a recap where like a TV show is something that you engage with and continue to engage with if you like it. Um, Whereas a movie, you only have to make that decision once really. So I think a recap serves a different purpose where it's like, you know, especially to Matt's point, if there's a whole round table of people that you like to read about it, then you get a, a variety of, of reactions and then you can sort of braid that into your own reaction versus a review where it's like yes or no. My, my former colleague Noel Murray uh, always branded uh, review, weekly episodic reviews as reports from the field. It's basically <laughs> sports reporting. It's if you have a beat, you know, and it's you're saying here's where I think this is going, here's what I thought worked tonight, but let's see what happens. And, and reviews are much more um, it, traditionally classical criticism. Consumer reports. Yeah. The, the discussion that happens after your recaps and reviews, the comments section that we've all referred to, how, uh, how engaged to that, in that do you tend to be or feel obligated to be, and how does it make you feel about the state of humanity? Um, I, I used to be engaged in it a lot. Like I would, especially on my old blog, where, they, where all the comments would be emailed to me, I would read every single comment. And when I moved to HitFix... I would still, for a long time, read every single comment. And then I reached, it reached a point where, A, I just didn't have enough time in the day. Like, I wouldn't get writing done if I was reading all the comments. But also then, like, just there would be certain levels of misbehavior in the comments that would just be so aggravating that I couldn't deal with it. You know, the, the Game of Thrones book readers who are determined to tell me what's happening three seasons from now. Uh, and like can I that. say, I love how he handled that. <laughs> He's like, no more comments. Yeah, and that was it. <laughs> he was like a vengeful Old Testament guy. <laughs> yeah, it's like a smoking ruin where the city used to be. Everyone's like, "What happened?" Yeah. It was Game Alan. The Thrones people are crazy. You know, but I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll read the comments to things Matt does. I read the AV Club comments sometimes, and sometimes they're fantastic. Right. And there's great, educated, thoughtful fans who really want to engage. And then there's just assholes. Well, and there's and also the the phenomenon of people like, I'm sorry. You know, I don't want to impugn anybody who's a perfectly wonderful human being, but there are a lot of people, and I discovered this at Salon, who don't read not only the piece you wrote, they don't even read the headline. Yeah. They just want to jump into the comments and, you know, beat their chests and tell you what they thought. And it's like, it's fine, but that doesn't involve me anymore. And I'm kind of done, I'm kind of done with it. I'm kind of done with it. Once in a while, I'll check in. Usually it's on a show where I feel like there's maybe eight people who read the piece then I'll come in and say, and it's like, hey, Matt's here. Let's talk for a while, guys. But on the Mad Men recaps, no. I feel, I feel like on the audience, especially on my pieces, has become divergent where there are people who come to read the piece and there are people who come to talk in comments. Yeah. And um, they're essentially functionally different audiences, and I appreciate both audiences, but it's, it's the latter is so often reading a review they've already written in their head that it's hard to engage yes. with them. Why did you leave out X? Yeah. yeah. I, I wrote for Yahoo for a couple of years, and those are the worst comments on the internet, maybe other than YouTube, no, no, probably. You, Tara, you've never been to NJ.com. Those oh. are the worst comments on oh, the really? internet. Oh, really? I got a long stretch. I got a two-syllable word for you. Salon. <laughs> but I will say, on our site, we've recently phased out comments, although our comments were fine, and we, like... 
personally approve them, but uh, have gone to bulletin boards instead. And so that's that seems to be more collegial. People like to talk to each other more. Bulletin boards are a great idea. I just picture like you're herding people into a little pen. It's working. I mean, that's that's that's. Want to leave a comment? Go to the bulletin board. It's worked so far. <laughs> we have two areas for Game of Thrones to get back to how crazy they are, where there's like the the book readers and the not book readers because they're that crazy about it. And then Alan's solution, which is just, I don't even want to hear your bullshit anymore. <laughs> Drone strike. Back here? I was like, since you all have so many shows you watch and you write about these days, I wonder if there's anything that you're actually watching just because you like it that you don't have to write about. I, I always save at least one show that I don't have to review weekly. It's usually a comedy that I just watch for fun. It, it used to be How I Met Your Mother, and we all saw how that turned out. Uh, but now it's uh, now it's it's pretty much New Girl. So that even like when New Girl is as struggling as it has, you know, I'm just like, yay, New Girl, because I, all I do is sit with my wife and watch it and laugh about Jake Johnson being my my dream guy. <laughs> Bob's Burgers is my show like that. Uh, so good. That's a good one. Uh, in my home, we watch a lot of the Comedy Central shows, both Daily Show and Colbert, but also Inside Amy Schumer and some of the other things. And I, I think Review with Forrest McNeil is the only one I've written about at all in the last year. That so. is an insane show. And I mean that in the best possible so way. Um, I have the luxury of having a co-editor, so we divide the work between us. So I, basically, there's lots of shows that she writes about, Sarah Debunting, my colleague. Um, so I'll watch like Hannibal and think, oh, I'm so glad I don't have to write about this because it's so complex. I don't want to take notes on that. I just want to enjoy it. I don't know how you can if you're writing about that particular show or, or girls or something like that. I, I like having that conversation. Um, and, and it is one of those things where, you, you know, this week's episode, especially of Louie, was such a conversation starter. I, I, I like, I find viewed it as a fun challenge to sort of work in. Uh, there's lots of conversations where, or topics where I would like to get in fights with people on Twitter, but I don't. <laughs> and then I give myself a pat on the back, <laughs> being I, such an evolved person. <laughs> I, do, I do increasingly try to let the piece stand for itself rather than get involved in discussions on Twitter or, you know, respond to comments on other pieces about it. I, 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 I think that's just right, I guess. I put a sticker up on my computer that says, do not engage. <laughs> Uh, it's working out okay. <laughs> yes? So, when I watched the Breaking Bad finale, I was like, just cut it out with these commercial breaks. Why didn't somebody just sponsor it and do one interrupted break? Why don't we see more of that? Because when I see, like, it's presented with limited interruptions, I get a warm and fuzzy feeling for that advertising. <laughs> so why is that a hard sell? I don't, why can't everybody do that? Uh, you know, I don't know the I don't know the answer. I mean, I, I think that there is more to be made from more people paying for more spots. I think the the idea of doing a one off, I think it makes sense occasionally. But when you think about, as you just said, all of those commercial breaks and how many commercials are buried in there, and the fact that you're getting hundreds of thousands of dollars for each of them 
it would be an enormous price tag for that warm and fuzzy advertiser. Is there, is there no backlash? Like, I got frustrated, even though I was past 40, from, I was like, God damn Taco Bell again. Well, so it made me angry at the advertiser. So is there no, like... There's not only a backlash, there's a backlash among the advertisers. You know, the, one of the ways to continue to exploit the decreasing ratings is to increase the amount of commercials. But advertisers hate that because they know that if they're in the middle of one of those commercial breaks, you're very unlikely to be sitting there watching that. You will either, it will drive you to DVR the show or it will drive you to change channels in the middle of it. In the same way, you know, one of the things that we talked about being sort of a virtue for basic cable, this idea that they realize that original content would allow them to charge more for their channels. And you constantly see these things every time somebody's contract is up where you should call and complain. And then the other side says, no, 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 call them and complain. Well, they are getting more money for those subscriptions, but it's also driving the price of your cable bill to ridiculous places. And as I referenced, when the, uh, the head of uh, Time Warner retired in 2013, he said that they are living in a fantasy world, like they are just refusing to see reality to believe that they can continue to sort of squeeze the remaining subscribers harder. It's just, it's continuing to drive people to a different model. And, and one of the things I think you probably found with the Breaking Bad finale is, I, had you watched the show live for the most part in the previous seasons... Yeah, see, that's a, a lot of people, can, and the ratings bore that out, watch seasons one through f- four on Netflix, you know, or, or, you know, or they'd watch it on DVR, and this was the first year they were watching it live, and I heard so many more complaints about the commercials than I had before. And the way the finale was structured, which I think Todd pointed out to me, is there were, like, tons of commercial breaks in the first half, so that the last 20 minutes or so could run on uninterrupted, which was... I guess an approach, but definitely a frustrating one. But of all the episodes that there ever were of that show, that's probably the one that was watched live the most. I mean, I would think for advertisers, yeah. that's your incentive to buy ads in that spot. Cause There's no way out for, yeah. for the audience, I think, just because of the reality of it. They used or to, what, buy it on iTunes the next They day. used to do single sponsor. If you can like, wait. Like in the 50s, single sponsor was the way all TV was made, but it was all very cheap. And with the expense of TV now, you, you, I, there's just no way that a single sponsor would foot the bill, I don't think. It's funny, to, uh, this, the, the, the format of the shows themselves, the response of the people who are making these shows to these conditions is interesting. And, and I, I, I've written a fair amount about this, about the way that storytelling has changed and how format is the final frontier for creativity in scripted television. And the placement of ads, the absence of ads, the presence of ads, the placement of ads, the length and duration of ads is a factor in how these stories get told. And it's always funny to me to see how, like, um, Mad Men deals with it, which is Mad Men pretends there are no ads. Like, sometimes it'll be like they'll just cut off, like, practically mid-sentence sometimes. You're like, what did he... What? And then there's an ad for, you know, John Hamm selling you a truck or something. Yeah. And, and then no. you watch it. Yeah, and then you watch it. Exactly. <laughs> Isn't that always confusing, though? Because I always feel like, do you really want Don Draper selling your product, given what you know about him? But what, you know? what if it's the talking toilet from Bob's Burger that's trying to sell you the car? <laughs> if it had the voice of John Hamm, I think we'd be sold. Which the talking toilet did, yeah. <laughs> I can't remember my original point. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It was the uh, it, yeah. It was the way the way that storytelling has changed. I like the fact that um, 
they've started to use the cut to black in really artistic ways. Like, like you, I, I noticed that especially when you watch them again on Netflix without the commercials. You can see that they're thinking ahead to when this thing doesn't have ads. And like the placement of where they end a scene, how they end it, if it's something quiet or if it's something really abrupt. And Breaking Bad was the most perverse example of that. Because in the second half of the final season, they would do things like they'd end with Jesse Pinkman pouring gasoline on a rug and screaming and they'd cut off in the middle of the scream. And then you come back the next week, and they don't tell you what happened. And they wait half an hour. And it's like they're deliberately torturing us. Uh, yes, back here with the glasses. We don't have enough time to figure it all out. I was going to say, I'm glad you said it first. I don't know. I'm terrified by the rise of all these web video shows. Um, Like, there's a show on YouTube I seriously considered putting in my top ten last year. But, like, then you you look at, like, all the links on the side for other shows on YouTube, and you're just like, dear God. Like, there are thousands upon thousands of things that we have three dozen writers who write for us, and we can't even begin to look at it all. I feel like I'm in a pie-eating contest, and people keep bringing me more pies. (laughs) Uh, yes, we're here. Um, one of the things that struck me with that last slide comparing cancellation rates between uh, network and cable is that a cable show, even when it's canceled, they air all the episodes of a season and in the order in which they were intended to be aired. And I was curious if you guys to talk about how you feel about like the amount of time that an audience is given to, to accept a show and how that affects that, those cancellation rates. Mm. Well, sorry. No, no, no. You as someone who had a... <laughs> sure. It's my slide, Alan. Yes. <laughs> No, I I think uh, there's a a couple things. One, networks create, I mean, obviously they have more nights to program. I mean, HBO, for all of its awards, is really a Sunday night channel, right? So they don't have a lot of stuff waiting. They're they're going to ride out the things that they have bet on. But the flip side of that is all of their resources are dedicated to making those things awesome, right? So they really believe in those shows, and they can afford to give them a chance. I think in network, it's both that you have something you can throw on if you take this off, and there is tremendous pressure from advertisers to get anything that isn't working off immediately. And it's not just pressure. It's literally you're giving away money. So you've promised a certain number of eyeballs for every ad that you sell. When you fall short of that, you have to give away free advertising in other shows to make up for it. So it's costing you money to stick with a show that isn't meeting its expectations. So you take it off and you try to put something else in there. But the the downside of that is exactly what we've been talking about, which is that you stop believing, you know, uh, having gone to the upfronts and being one of the shows they say is going to be, you know, really great this year, you sort of feel like, you know, I've only been here three times, and I feel like all of these advertisers spend their life coming, and, like, why would anyone believe anything you're saying? Like, you, it, they're all going to be the greatest, and then they're all gone in a couple of weeks. It really is... They just throw a lot of product out there. It's just it's the different strategies. It's trying to make a few things great, or a lot of things done, and then let the audience sort it out. 
And I think that leads to more of that sort of network versus cable snobbery, which is I, I think there were probably some people who were afraid to sample a show like Lone Star because they figured Fox was going to do exactly what they did I was just about to say, I talk, a lot of, I talk a lot of viewers off the ledge. Like, dude, they don't want to commit to a show because they think it might be canceled. It's like you're a relationship counselor sometimes when you're a TV critic. It's like, it's you know what? It's worth it. Just the experience is worth it. You, it doesn't mean you're going to be married to the show for the rest of your life. You might have a good couple of years, but give it a go and see how it goes. Isn't it better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all? Exactly. And then you got the bad relationship shows, you know, like, like Glee. <laughs> It could be like five straight weeks of fucking hate you. You drive me crazy, and then you do something, and it's like, oh, I remember why I loved you, Glee. And then there's like four more weeks of, ugh. Oh, that was the last season of Him Yum, I think. Oh, God. But the development process for, net, for networks is sort of, I mean, it goes to your point about Nielsen, too, right? It's like, this is how it's always been done, so why would we do anything different? Even well, if our audience is half what it used to be. And Kevin Riley has left us, but he, yes. he was formerly the president of Fox, and he made a big deal this year about getting rid of the sort of antiquated pilot season and not essentially making, making broadcast the way that they make cable. And that was sort of met with both uh, mixed enthusiasm and, and mixed results thus far. But I really... I think that is the answer, and that is the way things are going. The, way, the reason they're afraid of it is... A show like Grey's Anatomy, where, they, frankly, they hated the show. They thought it was awful. They rode those people into the ground while they were making the season. And the only reason they made all of them is because they made them all before they aired. But they had a game show ready to go in the third week. They had decided, based on their testing, they were going to give that thing two weeks, and it was gone. And then they put it on, and it was this enormous hit. And when something like that happens, you realize you don't know anything. So, like, guessing ahead of time becomes very, very scary. And so it, it, someone has to decide, and in network, we sort of push the decision on you. Like, we say, well, we'll tell you it's all awesome, and then you tell us when we're right. And in cable, they really go, no, I think, I think this is it. We're going to ride this. I feel, I feel like networks are, the broadcast networks are far more willing to support weird stuff than they used to be. Better off Ted got a second season. Dollhouse got a second season. Community ran five years, maybe a sixth. They're just far more likely. Did you hear the murmur after he said that? <laughs> what do you know that we don't, Todd? I know nothing. Um, I'm writing it in my head as we speak, actually. Um, no, I, I, but I think they're far more likely to support this sort of weird uh, outro content, but there's this really... There's this perception that they're not that has been around for 30 years and just well, is not the, going away. I think the weaker the network, the more willing they are to yeah. support. You know, I don't think Hannibal survives its first season if NBC was in the position it happens to be this season. Well, you talk about, you know, uh, that's funny you should say that because among the broadcast networks, if you look at some of the great artistically innovative shows that have ever aired on a network, a hell of a lot of them are on ABC because ABC was the last of the major networks to come around. It was always in a weak ratings position. It was always afraid that it wasn't going to be able to make an impression compared to CBS and NBC. And so as a result, you get things like uh, uh, Twin Peaks and uh, what was it? Um, I'm trying to think what all, what all else was on there. Uh, uh, Roots, wasn't that ABC? Yeah. Yes. So. And, and it was kind of like, well, to hell with it. Nobody's watching us anyway. 
And that's actually a tremendous benefit, I think, is like having nothing to lose. And, and Hill Street Blues came on NBC at a time when NBC was in really dire straits. That's, that's often when it happens. And then I, they got like something like 18 Emmys that first season, something absurd like yeah. that. Lost and Desperate Housewives and Grey's Anatomy all debuted like right after ABC had cratered from the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire phenomenon. Right. And uh, honestly, like CBS in the 70s, all its great sitcoms came at a time when people were like, we're tired of rural sitcoms, so what are we going to watch now? And it wasn't CBS. So, But, you know, there are shows like Seinfeld that used to get sort of nurtured with low ratings because there was a belief that at some point they could explode and be hits. I don't think anybody thinks that's the case with Hannibal, but I think that we, again, we live in a world where NBC owns Hannibal. There's a lot of other ways to exploit it because it's serialized. It's extraordinarily valuable to Netflix or some other sort of second-run place where people can binge watch it. And I think that that, it offers you different ways to have something be a success. And if you happen to be a network that is in a position where you can sort of, well, you can either weather the low ratings or you don't have any choice. Everything is getting low ratings. Then you can afford to stick with some shows in a way that you couldn't even five or six years ago. But that's also, I mean, if the audience is shrinking overall, it makes sense for NBC or any other network to put all their faith into something that really defines what the network is going to be like and has a very passionate fan base, even if it's small, those people are going to be really excited and telling their friends to watch it. And that helps to give NBC an identity in the same way maybe someday that we think of like an FX show feels like an FX show. There was something that uh, Warren Littlefield, the former NBC president, said on this panel discussion uh, about Fargo, which he's an executive producer of. Um, I was asking him about this, about the declining audiences and the rating question and all of that, and he broke it down for me in a way that really made it all make sense, which was he said, you've got to remember that we're not just talking about who watches it the first time anymore, that these are properties that can be endlessly exploited. And in the long run, this, he thought, more than anything else accounts for the rise, the general rise in quality, the inclination to take artistic risks that we're seeing in scripted comedy and scripted drama, because they're thinking, he said... We don't have to have 10 million viewers a week. We don't have to have 5 million viewers a week. If we have, like, 1.5 million viewers a week, that's enough because we're going to get more of them on the back end. We're going to make money selling it overseas. We're going to make money selling it, uh, uh, you know, to uh, Netflix or striking a deal with Amazon. There's a million different ways to exploit this property. You, you know, you end up watching it on an airplane, whatever, and, and it all makes sense. And, and in fact, um, this idea of the year-round pilot development season that you were talking about, uh, I remember like 15 years ago or so when Alan and I were out at press tour, weren't the network presidents talking about getting rid of the pilot season then? Yep, they were talking about that. They were talking about year-round programming. It's all just it happens over and over again. And yeah, I mean, it, well, I think uh, what underlies that is the acknowledgement that it doesn't make any sense. To do it the way we do it, no. it's just it's like uh, it's like having a demolition derby on both ends. So you order all your shows to pilot at exactly the same time. So 60 people are looking at the same pool of actors. They all need a leading man in his 30s to 40s. Like, it, it, you deplete the resources and you spread them across so many things that they all end up being mediocre. Whereas if you could just cycle some of the same shows throughout the year, you have a much better chance of them being good. Same thing with these insane premiere weeks where it's like, all right, guys, and we all put on our helmets and we just smash into each other. Yeah. And in two weeks, you know, half the people are dead. <laughs> the, uh, the 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 thing about the the pilot season, though, um, the the way that things are done is insane. And I don't want to get too specific about it, but I know somebody who made a show who spent years 
making a show, writing a show, producing a show, getting the money from network to shoot a pilot, casting it, shooting it, editing it, turning it in, four years of their life, and the network said, I don't like it, and they didn't order it. And I said, because I like to ask stupid questions, why don't you just shoot the pilot again with a different director and see if they like it better? And he said, because that's not how it works. It is that's not how it works. And that show was Matt Zollerseitz's Manimal. <laughs> I think that, that's the remarkable thing about um, you bringing up community is that it really is, it's a show that doesn't sort of fit any of these. It's owned by Sony. It's on NBC. All NBC gets out of it is the money they make from advertising, which obviously was not that significant given uh, the ratings, but it really seemed to survive on the critical groundswell and the sort of halo effect that had for a network that was in really dire straits. It was like, well... Those guys like something that we have. That's important. Yeah. I mean, NBC kept trying to replace that in parks over and over again. It was like, we're going to do bigger, broader comedies. And what that meant was shows that people are going to, like, maybe more people will watch, but fewer people will care about. People cared about community. They went crazy for that And they're show. still going to care about community 10 years from now. And, we're yes. still, and, and yeah. you know, I, I really feel sorry for all the college professors who are going to have to grade all these papers about community because <laughs> it's going to happen. But well, People but are still caring about community on are. Comedy Central. I mean, that's the other thing about shows, too. It's like a show like Hannibal, which has niche appeal in its first run, maybe, is the kind of thing that when it goes to a second-run streaming service, that's the kind of show that you want to binge watch. Hawaii Five O, it's not my bag. But if if you like it, that's the kind of thing where it's like, eh, if it's, there's a U, if there's a USA Marathon, I'll put it on. But it's not something where you're going to seek it out necessarily and watch like 15 in a row. Well, the best the best uh, uh, proof of the idea that television shows can be a long term investment that steadily pay dividends is the fact that. The Sopranos went off the air in the summer of 2007. Very soon, there's going to be a deluxe Blu-ray box set with a bunch of extras that retails for $208. <laughs> 208 freaking dollars. Like, we haven't all seen those episodes 45 times. There better be a lot of nudity in those extras. <laughs> can, can, can I pay, like, an extra 20 bucks to have it without the Columbus Day episode? <laughs> oh! Right, Sopranos burn. One more. Yes. Um, If you wrote to the advertiser, they would notice that. I mean, is that effective for keeping a show? Does that have really any direct influence on what a network is going to keep a show? um, A lot of the people who ran the Save Community things were, like, vaguely telling me what they did, and they got far more effect from writing to Subway and saying thank you for advertising on this show than they did from writing to NBC. I think that's true. I don't think, I mean, uh, I don't think the network's 
care about. I think they did for a minute. You know, I think Peanuts can save Jericho once. <laughs> and but then, then that sort of was Once a you played that yeah. card, it's like, no, 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 we're not doing that. Don't send us stuff. And in fact, they will tell you. Roswell and Hot Sauce, wasn't that one of them? Yeah. But I think that, you, if anything, reaching out to advertisers, but I think more than that, it, it's a few people in a room who are making a decision sort of based on their gut. And I've seen them use sort of but look at it on Twitter or look at, you know, I've seen them use that both ways. They use things uh, to support it when they want to keep it and they ignore it when they want to get rid of it. And in the end, I think the the only thing you can really do at the moment is watch the show and hope that statistically a certain number of those Nielsen families are joining you because in the end, it is that number that comes out the day after the show that really drives whether we're keeping it or getting rid of it. That number, and do we own it? I, I think there is some benefit if you can get in, like if you can get a big enough furor around a show like Scandal, really blew up because of Twitter. But that's that's a once in a hundred chance. Like, it, it, and you have to have a show as good as Scandal was yeah. at the time it was blowing up. Right. Great. Well, thank you guys very, very much. Thank all of you. Now leaving Nerdist.com.